0: Today's sermon text this morning is uh, John 11, 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus had heard it, he said, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: John chapter 11, John chapter 11 couldn't turn there if you haven't already and while you're turning there let's pray god it was the confession of your people upon hearing and reading your word and your law god we plead with you that your glorious name may be blessed and that you and you alone may be exalted far above all blessing and praise. You and you alone are God and you have made the heavens and the heavens of the heavens with all their hosts. God, you have made the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. And it is you who gives, who gives life. And all of the heavens, all of the stars, bow down to you, God. You are worthy of all of this praise, God. So we ask that you would work in our hearts to do the very things that you command us to do, God. Through your word, change our hearts. Conform us into the image of your Son. That we might praise you, that we might glorify you, God. That we might lay down our lives for your sake. That you... And you alone might be glorified. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Scholar, orator, statesman, and soldier. These are the four categories that kind of define and encapsulate the life Of Caesar Augustus, or Julius Caesar. Augustus was his nephew. And he comes from the Julian family of which there were four emperors, four Roman empires, emperors within a hundred years out of this Julian family. And he comes out of this family, so they have a little bit of wealth and a little bit of status. He's 25 years old, and he and some of his guys, they go out in the Mediterranean Sea and they get captured by some pirates. And they're going to hold him ransom for 20 talents worth of gold. You know what he does? He starts laughing at them. He says, 20 talents of gold? Don't you know who I am? I'm worth at least 50. So then they send the note back. And while these captors, these pirates are holding him for 84 days, he refuses to serve them. Rather, he derides them for being too loud when he's trying to read and do his writing. And then he begins... Telling them they must serve him. So he does that. He's 25 years old. And then he begins to rise up in the Roman politics. And so they, the established power wants to get rid of him. So they send him off to the, off to Gaul, basically the backwoods of the Roman Empire. And while he's going there, while he's going there, he's going through a little village in the Alpine Mountains. And his his comrade, his second guy beside him, he goes, look at these, look at these people. They have nothing. They have nothing. And Julius Caesar sees, sees them and he says, I would rather be first here. Yes, they have nothing, but I would rather be first here in this little hamlet than second in all of Rome. And he goes his way, and he conquers all of Gaul, which is France. And then he makes his way up to the English Islands. And you have the Glaic Wars there as well. And then he makes his way back down, and he crosses the Rubicon. Declares war on the Senate. starts a, the mechanism in place starts the Civil War. Rises to prominence. And becomes, after it was a republic, now it's an empire, and becomes the first emperor. Of Rome. Not only that, not only to the to the west, but also to the north, he's conquered, and then he goes out to the east and conquers in Turkey, as well. In this battle of Zella, in which you get this, the report back, he says, Vini vidi, vici." I came, I saw, I conquered. Has this glorious life until March fifteenth. His wife is weeping, begging him, don't go to the Senate, don't go to the Senate. She was kept up all night the night before. That's the story, you know, how the stories get embellished. Even his horse is weeping as he's carrying him in to the Senate chambers. And it is there that this man, the most powerful man in all of Rome, the most powerful man in all the world, Is attacked by the senators, they pull out their knives, and even his dearest friend, Brutus, begins to stab him, and he takes his cloak and throws it over himself, lays down, and they assassinate him. This is what you have in the world. A glorious, amazing, in a worldly sense, life. A glorious life. And then a putrid death. But what do you see in the Christian life? You see the complete opposite. You see a mundane life and then a glorious death. That's what you see in the Christian life. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Lazarus. Who you know nothing about. Except for the fact that he dies. Mundane life. Glorious death. And this is true because what I want you to see, meditate on over this next week, is that this death that we have, this death, this physical death, serves a greater purpose. This death serves to glorify Christ. Your death will serve to glorify Christ, just as it did with Lazarus. How do we see that? Well, verses 1 through 4. We see that we should glorify the Son, glorify the Son, the eternal Son of Christ, Christ. Glorify Him in your sufferings. Number two, you're going to see in verses five through six that our sufferings are rooted in love. That's, that's the fount of which so much of this suffering comes in the text. That's what you see is that the suffering is rooted in love. Number one, glorify Christ in your sufferings. Number two, these sufferings that we have are rooted in God's love for you. And then finally, we're going to see how suffering and and death actually work to provoke belief. That's what they're there to do. Suffering and death are there to provoke belief. Let's go back to the text here. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary... And her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Keep in mind here of where we're at in the Gospel. We're crescendoing up, building up now towards the crucifixion. Just in this previous chapter, do you guys remember it? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. And no one is greater than my Father. And my Father and I are one. There's glorious promise. That Christ will hold you. But what about death? That's why John arranges it. So we need another lesson in reading the gospel. Think to yourself, why is John orchestrating these stories the way he is? He's just given you the promise that Christ will hold you and never let go of you. The reader thinks, that's great, but what about death? I still see death. Okay, let me put in this story about Lazarus. And you have here this the seventh sign as well. You have Christ who's turned this water into wine. He's healed the official son. And every time you're thinking, how should I respond to this? What do I do with this? Do I believe or do I not believe? What do I do? They have this healing at the side of the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the the water. Then in chapter 9, we see this healing of the blind man at the festival of booths. And now you have this story of Lazarus. And what John is doing is setting you up. I see these things. Am I going to believe or not believe? Am I going to believe or not believe? And then you have Lazarus. Am I going to believe or not believe? And this is all working up until you have the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. In which you, the readers, now have to wrestle with the idea. Not just the people in the story, but me. What am I going to do? Am I going to believe or not believe? What shall it be? So this is where we are in the Gospel of John. Will Christ render your pride and subdue your soul? That's the question. So a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with his ointment with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So, illness, suffering, so, therefore, they sent for him. They do the right thing, don't they? A little bit of suffering drives them towards Christ. They, have, they, they know they have nothing else, but it drives them towards Christ. And not, no, no reservation of prudence, no distance would keep them away. So they're from the city of Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. You go out the eastern gate, down through the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives. You have five more. It's all one city now, but you'd have five rolling hills, and then about two miles then to the east. You have this city of Bethany. It's actually the place where Christ would retire throughout the Holy Week that we'll be preaching on. And they have this plea. Lord, he who whom you love is ill. This plea, this simple plea. And you can hear the desperation. It's not that Lazarus loves you. No, no. Lord, the one that you love, he is ill. What are you going to do? And they trust and they know that Christ will come. He will, of course, right? But when Jesus heard it, He said, this is not the illness that leads to death. Verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Okay. Keep going down in the text. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Okay, so what's happening? Don't worry, he's not going to die. A little bit later, Lazarus is dead. How is it that it doesn't lead to death if Lazarus dies? Let me tell you this. There's a death that's not death. In the garden... Genesis 2, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Genesis 3, they eat the fruit. And you know what? Adam lives another 900 and roughly 930 years. What I want you to see here, that you have in this physical death, bodily death, you have a physical picture of this invisible reality that's going on. We will all die, yes, physical death, but we will all be raised, sinners and saints. You will all be raised. This is is the great hope of the prophets, actually, in Isaiah 49. And I will make all my mountains a road, and all my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north, and from the south, and from the west. All of God's people. Everybody will be gathered up. Everybody will be raised. Sinners and saints. Paul says as he's giving his defense in Caesarea. Acts 24, he says, Having hope, having a hope in God, which these men, they themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. Do not marvel at, we just preached on this in John chapter 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when there, when all who are in tombs will hear the voice of God and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of death. That's why when Jesus is teaching in Matthew 10 that we shouldn't fear those who could just kill the body. But no, no, no. You should fear those who can Kill the body and then send your soul to hell. So how is it that Christ can say, don't worry, this is not an illness that leads to death. There's two deaths that are happening here. One is temporal. This first one is temporal. And everybody will be raised, sinners and saints. But there is another one from which there will be no resurrection whatsoever. Where the fires will never be quenched. And the darkness will ever be present. Fear that death. We spend all of our lives worried about this, this first death. From which everybody will be raised. But we think very little, nothing about this eternal death. That is awaiting you if you don't believe. And so why does all this happen? This temporal, physical death of Lazarus serves a purpose. And what is it? It is for the glory of God. In verse 4, it is for the glory of God. Why is all of this happening? It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So knowing that this is temporal... Glorify this first death, is temporal. Glorify Christ. Glorify the Son of God through it. And you, you see this distinction, what's happening here. John's not writing. He's not saying that Christ will be glorified in the midst of this. So even though there's some horrible things happening, even in the grand scheme of things, Christ will be glorified. No, no, no. Do you see what the word says? Through it, through your death, through Lazarus' illness and suffering, those are the means by which Christ will be glorified. They're the conduit. The sufferings are the conduit through which Christ is glorified. How does this happen though? How? I mean Christian easy, okay, but practically how does that happen? When God uses your sufferings to compel others towards Christ. Much of counseling, much of raising kids, is telling the story again and again, this is not about you. This is not about you. This is not about you. Chapter 9, verse 3. Why is this man born blind? Is his parents? Is it his? No, no, it's not about him at all. He's blind so that the Son of God may be glorified through him. That's why he's blind. The death of Lazarus actually has very little to do with Lazarus. Mary and Martha are driven towards Christ through Lazarus' illness, through Lazarus' death. How many times, think of yourself, how many times have you been driven to fasting and to praying and to communion by the illness of other people around you it happens all the time but very rarely do we make the mental switch to contemplate in the midst of our own suffering how god might be using that to draw other people towards himself as well towards a deeper communion and a deeper fellowship With Christ. So in the midst of your suffering. Trust God. That he will hold you fast. And he will be using your suffering. For his glory. Even if you don't see it. Trust God in that. So how do we glorify Christ. Through our suffering and death. Well. Number one. We realize that our suffering. Is compelling others towards Christ. And number two. Just know that Christ will act. Lazarus glorified God because Christ is the one who acted upon him. That's how we glorified God. You glorify Christ in your sufferings by knowing that He is the one who will act upon you. Perhaps not even in this life, but He is the one who will act upon you. So what we can't do is fall into the trap of thinking that we must be doing something. I have to be doing something for God to be glorified in my, in my life. No, just you being in the state of suffering brings glory to Christ. Just Lazarus being ill brought glory to Christ. The glory doesn't begin when the suffering ends. The glory, the glory, does not begin when the suffering ends, and when we think that, it traps us because we think so immediately and so shallowly. Because, because it drives you to this place, and you've all been there. And someone's ill, something's happening, and you're saying, "God, glorify yourself." By healing this man. God glorify yourself. By healing me. Or by removing this cup of suffering. God wouldn't you. Wouldn't you glorify yourself so much. Hours. Hours of us. Pleading with God. That he would save. Our daughter Emma. God don't you know how many people. Will be glorified. These. These. These physicians will be praising you when they see your miraculous healing and glory through the healing of our daughter, Emma. And you begin to barter, right? A little bit. God, just glorify yourself through the healing of Emma. And it... it, I thought it was just kind of floating out there, to be honest. Like an unanswered prayer. Until I wrestled with this text this week. And I realized. He did answer it. He did. God glorify yourself. By healing her. Well he did heal her. Never to be healed again. And he did glorify himself. Receiving the eternal praise of his daughter. Just for a moment my daughter. But forever his daughter. He did heal it. He did answer it. And that's in a way that you never, never would expect. So God will be glorified. Even in death. How good is our God? That even in death, He will be glorified. He was glorified in the death of Lazarus. He was glorified in the death of Christ. And we, we revere Christ. As this conquering king. And we bow our knees to him. But we adore him. As the lamb who was slain. To take away the sins of the world. Even in your death. Even your death. You will bring glory to Christ. Just plead with him. That it's the first death. The temporal death. Plead with him. That it might not be the second death. The eternal one. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus is ill, what did he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Think about it. What What is the disposition of Christ towards Mary and Martha and Lazarus? He loved them. He could have just named the family, but it's no not, not the family as a whole. Each individual. He loves them. Mary. She's the one that anointed His feet. You don't see it here until chapter 12. But it's so well known that even before the readers get that far in the gospel, they already know, oh, this that must be that Mary. Oh, yes, that is that Mary. We're not there in the story yet, but that is that Mary. So well known was this in early Christianity. And Lazarus... From the Hebrew, Eliezer, meaning God will help or God helps. So then what is the fruit of this love? The fruit of of Christ towards them. The eternal Son of God loves them deeply. What is the fruit of that? Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved them, therefore he stayed. It's not even though he loved them, he stayed. No, it's not that. It's not watered down at all. It's not, in spite of the fact, it's not it's not that. It's not in spite of the fact that he loved them, he stayed a little bit longer. No, no. But He loved them. In the conclusion of His love, then, is that He stayed for two more days. He didn't answer their immediate response in their request. Because He loved them, He lets Lazarus and them suffer. Because He loved them, He let Lazarus die. Sure, you could have healed it remotely. Remember the official son? Chapter 4. Remember the the official son? He could have healed him remotely. Christ was in Cana. He was the the man's son who was in Capernaum, about eighteen miles away. He could have done that with Lazarus. But Lazarus would have just then been like everybody else. Isaiah fifty four is about the cosmic salvation of all, but I think it fits here. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. For a moment, or in anger, I, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. See, the problem we have is that we think proximity will create a buffer between us and suffering, or us and hardships. We think the closer to Christ, the less suffering, because sufferings of the world. And closer to Christ, further away from the world. And then we end up becoming embittered towards Christ. Because we think, aren't you the one who's supposed to leave the 99 and go after the one? I've read about that. That was pretty amazing. But you're not going to come after me, really? Out of all of the ones that are scattered about, I'm not going to be one of the ones that you come and find? we're tempted to think then that He doesn't care for you. And these verses, these verses destroy that understanding. Have you ever thought that you suffer because Christ loves you? Have you ever thought of that? That your sufferings are an emblem of His love for you? Proof? That He loves you. He lets you suffer. You would have prayed and said, God, thank you for taking away everything. All of my health, my family. Even the good things in this suffering. Thank you, God, for tearing all of them away. Pulling them away. So that I might not have anything. And then in the midst of having nothing, I have all of you. You're On Mother's Day, have you ever prayed and said, God, thank you for this monthly reminder that I will never be a mother. Thank you, God, for this loneliness. I know it's a mark of your love upon me. Thank you, God, for this the bodily pain that is there every step I take. Brothers and sisters, count your sufferings as a blessing. Proof that God loves you. For Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this this soul-anguishing suffering was the fruit that was born out of the root of God's love. So where have you been here? So we've seen that Lazarus has gotten ill. And he could have found all the best physicians in the world, and it wouldn't have mattered. They kind of... said, you know, he could have taken care of himself a little bit better. Come on, Lazarus. Well, it wouldn't have mattered because it was God's will that he would die. So that Christ would be glorified in his death. And they do everything right. Their immediate response is go to Christ, go to Christ. So they do everything right. Let's not be like Job's friend and try to find some fault with them, right? They do everything Right. But their proximity and devotion to Christ does not insulate them from suffering. Their suffering is rooted in the love of God. One of the commentators writes, said, It is no new thing for those whom Christ loves to suffer. For this illness corrects the corruption. This illness corrects the corruption. So now we're going to see, in our little bit of time, how suffering and death are a means to an end, not only to glorify Christ, but also to compel you towards belief. Let's just read through the rest of the text. Now Jesus loved, oh, verse seven here. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go up to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, L- Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you are you going there again? They remember, they remember. This, from last week, we preached on how they're they're holding the stones in their hands and they're ready to kill Christ. Why would you go back into that? Don't go back into that. Don't do that. Jesus answers, verse nine: Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he will not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Christ, the light in him, you will stumble. After this, saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, will he he recover? Now, oh, Jesus had spoken of death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you, so that you might believe. But let us go. Let us go to him. They need not Fear. For they will be walking. They will be walking in the light. They will have the light of Christ in them as they were walking. And they have nothing to fear. But this death is a means to something far greater. Death is to lead you towards belief. Christ was delighted in the midst of death, even in the midst of Lazarus. It was a means by which the disciples would then believe. For certain death would bring certain resurrection. Certain death will bring certain resurrection for those who have the light of the world, the light of Christ within them, for they will not stumble. He will surely be resurrected. So what do we do? do If this is true, how does this work out in our lives? If this is true, number one, it's it's the opposite. One, fear death. Two, don't fear death. Number one, fear death. Just this week, I was reminded by one of you, uh, Samuel Johnson, an English poet and playwright. He writes, depend upon it. Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows that he is to be hanged in a fortnight, in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Fear death. Some of you in this room, you should fear this eternal death. It should quicken your mind and your soul. You should fear this death, but you're running there as fast as you can and and given any chance to leave this eternal death, you wouldn't do it because it would mean that you would worship Christ and you would rather be in hell than worship Christ. And you're displaying that in your life right now because you're not worshiping Christ. You might be here, maybe to save a marriage or to obey your parents, but you're not here to worship Christ. Let this looming death serve the purpose of awakening your sleeping soul. Number one, this is true, so fear death. Number two, don't fear death. Don't fear death. Actually, what it does is this death that's before you, it compels you to give all of your life for the glory of Christ. Look in verse 16. So then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we too, that we may die with him. Let us go that we may die with him. And he's speaking to the disciples. He's not speaking to Christ. He's speaking to the disciples. So the hymn is Christ. They're picking up the stones. We're going to Galilee. This is not going to go well. But we know the resurrection is true. So let come on, guys. Let's go. Let's go with him. That we too, that we too must die. Death cannot separate us. It cannot. From the eternal love of Christ. And it will not pull you out of the hand of the good shepherd. So you can be absolutely reckless in your devotion to Christ. Sure, you maybe die for a little bit. But then then be resurrected once again. So what can you do? You can follow Christ anywhere. Let us go. Let us go with him. So that we might glorify Christ in our death, that we might, as we are raised to eternal life. Let us pray. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son, and we ask that you would work in us a heart that wants to follow him. God, let us. Let us go with him that we may die with him. God, let that ring with us in our ears. Let us not fear death. But God, in the midst of that, we ask that you would work in us, work in our hearts. If we do not believe God, work in our hearts to fear this eternal death. Let us know that this temporal death that is before us is nothing. Nothing. Even for the sinner and the saint. But there is something far worse than aging. There is something far worse than being in the throes of death. God, thank you for your Son. That gives us the light of the world and the light within us. That we can walk in such a way. That we know death is not the final answer. But the resurrection and life in Him will always conquer. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.